This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Welcome back to the emdocs.net podcast. Our next two podcasts are going to be split into two separate parts. They both deal with necrotizing soft tissue infection. Let's get to it. Today, we have a guest with us, Jess Pelletier, an emergency medicine education fellow at Washington University School of Medicine. She wrote an amazing review looking at the pearls and pitfalls of necrotizing soft tissue infections. Jess, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Britt. I'm so excited to be here with you on emdocs.net today. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so amazing to have you here. You've done some amazing work. That review was awesome. You know, we see soft tissue infections almost every shift. Most of the time, it's something like cellulitis, maybe an abscess, and we all love a good incision and drainage. You get that nice reward with removing the pus, the patient feels better, but there are a couple soft tissue infections that we have to keep on our radar. One of those is a necrotizing soft tissue infection. The incidence of this condition varies pretty widely. It depends on the location, what definition is used. It's probably between 0.02 to 0.04 per 1,000 per year. When we look at who is most commonly affected, most patients are over age 50. There's usually a risk factor like diabetes. Maybe they're immunocompromised. There could be trauma to the area. But the issue is the morbidity and the mortality. The rate of limb loss is around 16%, and mortality ranges anywhere between 20 to 100% if we don't obtain adequate source control. Jess, you had mentioned that you recently had an interesting case. Why don't you walk us through that? Absolutely, Britt. I'd love to. I had a 42-year-old male who came to my ED 10 days after an incision and drainage of a right lower extremity hematoma, which he sustained from a tree crush injury to his leg. The incision and drainage was done at an outside hospital, and he was discharged from that facility without antibiotics, but his wounds were healing well by secondary intention shortly after the procedure, according to the fiancé. He presented to RED three days before his visit with me, so seven days post-op, for a wound check. At that visit, he had some bruising to the medial distal thigh, it felt warm to the touch, and he had localized pain to the area. There were no fevers, chills, or vomiting. The provider noted some bruising and erythema surrounding the wounds, but no fluctuance or induration, normal range of motion, and the patient was neurovascularly intact. He was discharged without antibiotics and was told that his wounds appeared to be healing appropriately. At the time of my visit, the patient was screaming in extreme pain and he needed 10 milligrams of morphine just to be conversational. The fiance noted that the wounds were starting to look infected despite her changing the dressings and cleaning the wounds as instructed. At home, the patient's pain was out of control and he'd been experiencing several days of fever, fatigue, nausea, and myalgias. On exam, he was tachycardic, but had good capillary refill and normal blood pressure. There was a linear open wound overlying the shin with a puncture wound medially, both of which were healing by secondary intention. 
There was erythema consistent with cellulitis surrounding both wounds, but I could also feel some crepitus medially, and the anterior compartment was extremely tender, though not tense, to palpation. The right lower extremity was neurovascularly intact. On bedside ultrasound, I saw cobblestoning consistent with cellulitis, but also fascial thickening concerning for NSTI. I started IV fluids and broad-spectrum antibiotics with cefepime, clindamycin, and vancomycin right away and called surgery to the bedside. They were not convinced that this was NSTI and felt that the patient's pain was out of proportion secondary to his history of IV drug use, though the patient was on methamphetamines in the past, not opioids. They did certainly agree that he had cellulitis, but they wanted a CT. Lab showed a white blood cell count of 19.7 with left shift, up from 11.9 a few days earlier, a C-reactive protein of 59, and the rest of his labs, including a CK and lactic acid, were essentially unremarkable. His lyrinic score, which we'll talk about later, was a 5. CT showed a large fluid collection in the medial proximal calf near his skin defect. Surgery felt this was a hematoma and did not want to take him to the OR. I re-expressed my concern for NSTI and requested a transfer to our main hospital, where he was taken to the operating room and found to have an infected hematoma and necrotizing fasciitis. Oh man, what a phenomenal case. So many potential pitfalls here. Your patients had some key history. They had some great exam findings. The ultrasound was suggestive. And you did a great job getting antibiotics on board. You resuscitated the patient. And then you also got surgery to the bedside. Even more importantly, you had a very concerning history and exam, and you fought for your patients. You went above and beyond and probably saved that patient's life. Just amazing. Okay, so let's get to the content here. We're going to break this discussion up into some pearls and pitfalls. What do you have for us with your first one? Let's start with pearl number one. NSTI is a spectrum of diseases of which necrotizing fasciitis is only one subtype. A pitfall would be failure to understand the spectrum of pathology in NSTI. Like many diseases, NSTIs are better defined as a spectrum of disease and not a single diagnosis. Let's go through the most common types of NSTI. Type 1 is the classic that we think of. Polymicrobial, it's seen most commonly in immunosuppressed patients with pre-existing disease and in older patients. This is your old, sick patient. Type 2 is monomicrobial. This is less common and risk factors include trauma, surgery, and IV drug use. Our patient had several of these risk factors. This is usually caused by group A strep, but MRSA is the second most common cause, and this was actually the NSTI subtype exhibited by the patient in our case. He only grew MRSA from his wound cultures. Much less common would be type 3, which is monomicrobial and very rare. It's usually caused by Vibrio, which of course would come from a contaminated water exposure, or Clostridium species. These people can often have hemodynamic collapse before cutaneous manifestations. Type 4 NSTI is usually caused by candida or zygomycetes. Given that these are fungal organisms, these are going to occur in immunocompromised patients or those with penetrating trauma, and this is very rare. Type 2 NSTI, we should be aware, can be associated with toxic shock syndrome. 
type 3 and type 4 NSTI are associated with immunocompromised state, and you should be suspicious of these in patients who have risk factors. Spontaneous atraumatic NSTI can also occur, most commonly in the case of type 2 NSTI. All right, so several subtypes. We will see type 1 and type 2 most commonly. Type 1 is polymicrobial. More often in older patients, they're immunocompromised. Type 2 is monomicrobial, and it can be associated with toxic shock syndrome. What's the second pearl and pitfall? Pearl number two, chronic illness or recent surgery should raise clinician suspicion for NSTI. Pitfall, discounting NSTI in the patient without a classic history. Luckily for our patient, there was a classic history of traumatic injury and recent surgery, but it's important for us to understand that NSTI can occur with or without an inciting injury. Inoculation with a skin wound or penetrating trauma would be an obvious potential source for bacterial entry into tissues, but in atraumatic cases, it's thought that a local inflammatory reaction can occur in response to injury, even as simple as a muscle strain, which induces vascular permeability into tissues. If someone has transient bacteremia from a genitourinary or gastrointestinal tract source, this could lead to seeding of those tissues with bacteria. 80% of people have a clear point of inoculation, like a bite, surgical incision, injection site, or perianal source, meaning that 20% of your patients will have no clear reason for NSTI. Sources of inoculation for type 2 infections can include IV drug use and recent surgery like we mentioned earlier, so be very suspicious in these populations. Also remember that if a patient's had surgery, you should suspect NSTI rather than simple cellulitis. There are a whole lot of risk factors for development of NSTI. I want to go through the most common in terms of the highest to lowest odds ratios. Diabetes mellitus has the highest odds ratio of 3.23, followed by alcoholism, chronic kidney disease, stroke, hypertension, cirrhosis, tuberculosis, valvular heart disease, ischemic heart disease, and gout. Some other risk factors for NSTI that we can see include immunocompromised status, vascular disease, hepatitis, and obesity. There have been case reports in the literature of NSAID use being associated with NSTI, but this is controversial, and there's an association but no evidence of causation. Wow, so some interesting risk factors here that we often don't associate with a severe infection, and kind of like you're leading to it, really comes back to that history. Spend that extra time Look for those risk factors, those comorbidities, diabetes, immunocompromise, severe renal or liver disease. Jess, what's pearl and pitfall number three? Pearl number three, there is wide variability in the clinical presentation of NSTI. Pitfall, performing an incomplete skin examination and prematurely excluding the diagnosis in the absence of major skin findings. Like we mentioned before, NSTI is a clinical diagnosis, but early in the course of the disease, folks can have really nonspecific symptoms like diarrhea, fatigue, loss of appetite, or malaise. Our patient exhibited a lot of these nonspecific symptoms at his first visit. Pain out of proportion is the classic board exam question, but this is absent if patients have encephalopathy or neuropathy. Pain is reported as the initial complaint in only 79% of cases. 
People may not have obvious skin findings, especially if they have deep tissue involvement. 41 to 96% of NSTI cases are initially misdiagnosed as simple cellulitis or abscess because of the nonspecificity of initial symptoms. Let's go through some of the most common symptoms. Swelling actually has the highest sensitivity at 92%, followed by pain and tenderness. Erythema can also be seen, but has a wide range of sensitivities in the literature, some say as high as 94%. Fever, a lot less sensitive, 67%. Warmth, less than half of cases. Boule, skin necrosis, and hypotension, some of those really classic ones, incredibly rare. A sensitivity for skin necrosis of only 65%, as low as 24% in some articles that I read. Hypotension, sensitivity in the low 20s. Same thing for crepitus and induration. So you can't hang your hat on any of these classic findings that you would see on a board exam. Fournier's gangrene can present a little bit different than our other NSTI subtypes. People may present with perineal pruritus and pain or anxiety, encephalopathy, and tachypnea right before they go into fulminant shock. They might have no initial skin changes until their perineum suddenly develops boule and crepitus, and these are usually late findings. NSTI cases don't usually present with signs of shock at the outset. Like we mentioned before, hypotension is not very common. Remember to be suspicious for NSTI in cases of toxic shock syndrome, since it's associated with up to half of group A strep-associated NSTI cases. NSTI can certainly progress to multi-system organ failure. One thing that I found really interesting when we were putting this together, Britt, is that there's such a thing as subacute NSTI. There are reported cases of slowly progressing NSTI that can take weeks to fully manifest. There's no evidence that the rapidity of spread actually influences mortality rate, so you need to treat these people the same, regardless of whether they present acutely or subacutely. So many pearls in those last couple minutes. There's a wide range these patients can present. We can't rely on those classic findings. We'll have a table in the show notes for everyone to look at that sensitivity and the specificity. Be on the lookout for pain out of proportion. If there's rapidly expanding erythema or pain beyond the margin of the erythema, Also, those other findings like bole, crepitus, and fever, but these are not reliable. Jess, let's get to pearl number four here, and this is going to be on lab findings. A lot more potential pitfalls with this. So what do you have for us with this one? Yeah, this is a controversial one. Pearl number four, laboratory testing cannot be used to rule out NSTI due to its low sensitivity. Pitfall waiting for results of laboratory testing when NSTI is suspected. There is no single laboratory test with adequate sensitivity or specificity to differentiate NSTI from other infectious processes or exclude the diagnosis. Certainly, if you suspect NSTI, you can use laboratory values to shape your pretest probability, and these lab tests can include a complete blood count, complete metabolic panel, C-reactive protein, and blood cultures, but you can't hang your hat on this if they come back normal. Several scoring systems incorporating laboratory analysis have been studied for use in NSTI. Most of us are probably familiar with the laboratory risk in necrotizing fasciitis or lorenic score, but how good is this really? All the components within the lorenic score are markers of systemic illness, including C-reactive protein, white blood cell count, 
hemoglobin, sodium, creatinine, and glucose. Individuals get points in a decreasing order for those laboratory values if they're deranged. And a score greater than six indicates further evaluation is needed, and a score greater than eight is considered high risk. The sensitivity of the Lorenic score has been found to be 68.2% and specificity 84.8% for a score of six, the score for which you're supposed to further evaluate for surgical intervention. And how about it for a score of eight, where we definitely need to consider NSTI? The sensitivity was only 40.8% and 94.9% specific. So this is not always going to help us. Our patient only had a Lorenic score of five, not even meeting the threshold of six that suggests the need for further evaluation. There have been case reports of patients with NSTI having Lorenic scores of zero. In other words, a Lorenic score can help you if it's high, but if it's normal, this isn't going to be of much benefit. All great points. I think the big takeaway is to avoid using labs or the Lorenic score to exclude the diagnosis. 68% sensitivity is not what we're looking for. If you have that patient and they have a score of six or more, sure, tell your surgeon, but otherwise you can't bank on the labs or the score. We have to use the whole clinical picture. That's going to end our first part on necrotizing soft tissue infection, pearls and pitfalls, with Jess Pelletier. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll look at imaging and management. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.